Peace be upon you. So God willing, in this episode, we're going to be discussing one individual. This individual goes by the name of Abu Huraira. He was supposedly a uh, companion of the Prophet for the last couple years of the Prophet's life, but he's most known for having the greatest number of hadith attributed to him compared to any other Prophet. And again, this is despite only living among the Prophet for a couple years before his passing. It's estimated that there are 5,374 traditions that go back to Abu Huraira. Now, to put this in perspective, let's look at some of the other closest companions to the Prophet and how many traditions, how many hadith, do they have attributed to them. So Abu Bakr, who is one of the first people to accept Muhammad as a messenger, who is the closest companion to the Prophet, who is the father-in-law to the Prophet, as well as being the first Khalifa, only had 142 traditions or hadith attributed to him. This means over the span of the decades and decades they knew each other, Abu Huraira in this short amount of time has 38 times more hadith than Abu Bakr. So God willing, let's look at another companion. This is the companion Omar, who is also one of the closest companions to the Prophet. In Sahih Bukhari 2468, it specifies that Omar and another Ansari neighbor would take turns each day visiting the Prophet uh, in Medina, uh, going to his house and seeing what new revelations came. But in addition to these frequent visits, let's emphasize that he also was the father-in-law to Muhammad and the second Khalifa. So despite all this, you would think that this individual should have a massive number of traditions, way more than Abu Huraira, who only spent a couple years with the Prophet. But no, Omar has 537 traditions attributed to him. And again, Abu Huraira has 10 times more traditions, more hadith attributed to him than Omar. What about Ali? Ali was the nephew of the Prophet. He lived in the same household as him in his youth. He was with the Prophet for 32 years, even before his messengership, and was the first male to accept the message. In a hadith, it is claimed that Muhammad considered uh, Ali as his errand to him being Moses. So this is in Sahih Bukhari 3706. It says in narrated Saad that the Prophet said to Ali, Will you not be pleased from this that you are to me like Aaron was to Moses? So here's an individual super close to the Prophet, the first male to accept the message. You'd anticipate this guy should have way more traditions, way more sayings from the Prophet than Abu Huraira. No, he only has 586 hadith directly attributed to him. Therefore, Abu Huraira has nine times more traditions than Ali, the Prophet's own nephew who lived in the same house as the Prophet. And you can go down this list and you see that the closest companions to the Prophet, they only narrated a small fraction of the Hadith that Abu Huraira had. You know, you're talking about less than 1%. And what else is interesting? There's numerous uh, companions that we know of who narrated zero Hadith. So how is it possible this one individual narrated so much Hadith? Even if you compare him to the next most prolific narrator of Hadith, Abu Huraira still narrated 2x more than Abdul ibn Umar, who was the son of Umar, and Anas ibn Malik. If you combine those two people, Abu Huraira still narrated more hadith. So how is it possible this one individual narrated so many hadith? You know, part of the reason is the companion's view of hadith. And this is very glaring. The reason that there aren't as many hadith from these other individuals is because it was frowned upon. And this is particularly true in the regards to writing of Hadith. This is why outside of personal writings that people might have possessed, the first publication of compiled Hadith occurred around the year 767. That is 150 years after Hijra. And this is the Mawatta of Imam Malik. Ironically, it is well understood that Imam Malik was against codifying his compilation and utilizing it as a source of law besides the Quran, despite spending the next three decades refining it. So the first compilation, official compilation of Hadith occurred 150 years after Hijra. So you have to ask, why was this apprehension towards writing? 
It's because even in the Hadith literature, it shows that there was apprehension around the collection and dis, uh, distribution of Hadith. People have been fabricating Hadith about the Prophet since he was alive. This is the reason that the Prophet prohibited any writing from him aside from the Quran. In Sahih Muslim 3004, it reads that the Messenger of God said, Do not write anything about me. And whoever wrote about me other than the Quran, then he should erase it. So in their own Hadith literature, they have the Prophet himself condemning people writing narrations about him. And there's another one. This is Bukhari 2155. The Prophet says, Why do some people impose conditions which are not present in Allah's book? Whoever imposes such a condition as is not in Allah's book, then that condition is invalid, even if he imposes 100 conditions, for Allah's conditions are more binding and reliable. Again, this is in their own literature. They have these statements. And there's more. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to be reading a lot of hadith because you have to use their own history, their own literature to show kind of the, 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 the follies in their logic. So this one comes from Sahih Muslim uh, 7. It says, The Messenger of Allah said, There will be in the end of time charlatan liars coming to you with narrations, hadith, that you nor your fathers heard. So beware of them, lest they misguide you and cause you tribulations. So again, we have the Prophet uh, prophesizing, saying that people are fabricating hadith about him. And there's another one. This is Sahih Bukhari 6586. And this is particularly interesting because apparently this is a prophecy regarding the Day of Judgment and what happened to those who were fabricating Hadith towards the Prophet. So it says, Some men from my companions will come to my cistern and they will be driven away from it. So it's saying in essence that this is his cistern is where the, uh, the, 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 the fountain is, this world of believers are going to reside. And it continues and says, I will say, O Lord, my companions, it will be said, you have no knowledge of what they innovated. And again, this word for innovation is hadith after you left. They turn apostate as renegades and reverted from the religion. So we're seeing that the hadith, even in their own hadith literature, does not view Hadith in a favorable light. There is perpetually warnings and condemnation against the spreading of Hadith. So what was the view of the companions uh, regarding the spreading of Hadith? And we have some interesting tidbits here. So this is Sahih Bukhari 108, and it's narrated by Anas. It says, The fact which stops me from narrating a great number of Hadith to you is that the Prophet said, Whoever tells a lie against me intentionally, then surely let him occupy his seat in the hellfire. So here's a supposed testimony from one of the companions saying their apprehension for sharing Hadith was because if they say something wrong, they could be reserving their seat in the hellfire. You know, ironically, this is considered one of the most mutawatir, authentic, indisputable uh, statements from the prophet that it says whoever tells a lie against me then surely let him occupy his seat in hellfire now what's interesting is half the narrations have the word deliberately lie and the other half of the narrations don't use the term deliberate so for instance if you look at Bukhari 109 it says the prophet said whoever ascribes to me what I have not said then surely let him occupy his seat in the hellfire. Meaning that irrespective if the lie was intentional or unintentional, that if you attribute lies to the prophet, that he is saying this reserves your place in hell. So because of this statement, it's understood that the majority of the uh, prophet's companions were incredibly apprehensive about sharing traditions and hadith. So even in this statement that is considered by many as kind of the gold standard of mutawatir hadith, it's inconsistent if the messenger stated the lies have to be deliberate or unintentional. And that's a pretty big deal because if you can't get it right on the most widely transmitted hadith, what's there to say regarding the accuracy of all other hadith? We have another statement from the uh, companion of the Prophet, and this is from Abdullah bin Masood in Sahih Muslim in the introduction number 17. 
he says, indeed, Satan will appear in the form of a man, and he will come to the people narrating to them false hadith, and they will then depart. Then a man among them will say, I heard a man whose face I recognize, but I do not know his name narrating such and such. So again, we're seeing this, this caution towards the dissemination of hadith. So let's look at some of the other narrations uh, regarding some of the closest companions and their views on hadith. So this one is narrated by Aisha about her father, Abu Bakr. It says, my father, again, Abu Bakr, had collected 500 hadiths of the Prophet. On the night he did it, he tossed and turned in bed. I asked, do you have an illness or have you heard something? In the morning, he said, my daughter, bring me the hadiths that I gave you. I brought them and he burned them. When I asked him why he burned them, he said, I do not want to die having these hadiths with me because I'm afraid that they're hadiths that are not originally as they are reported, though I heard them from people whom I trust. I'm afraid to narrate them that way. So we see that Abu Bakr was so concerned that he might have misconstrued one of these hadiths that he felt better burning them than to let them disseminate. In another narration from Abu Bakr, it says, After the demise of the Holy Prophet, Abu Bakr gathered the people and said, You're reporting about the Messenger of Allah inconsistent narrations. People coming after you will be engaged in more intense discrepancy. Therefore, do not report anything about the Messenger of Allah. If anyone asks you, you should refer it to the book of Allah as the arbitrator. You should thus deem lawful whatever is lawful therein and deem unlawful whatever is unlawful therein. What about Umar? So Umar was always staunchly against the uh, dissemination of hadith. Even at the point of the Prophet's death, he said verbatim that the Quran is sufficient for him. So this is a hadith from Bukhari, number 114, narrated by Ibn Abbas, that when the ailment of the Prophet became worse, he said, bring for me paper, I will write for you a statement after which you will not go astray. But Umar said, the Prophet is seriously ill, and we have Allah's book with us, and that is sufficient for us. So Umar, despite the Prophet himself supposedly saying, hey, give me a piece of paper so I can write something for you that won't lead anyone astray, Umar's response was that the Quran is sufficient for us. Meaning that even if the Prophet himself was ready to write down a narration, Umar says, no, we have the Quran. This is sufficient. And we see this mentality carry on into uh, his time as Khalifa. It's narrated that Umar... Uh, did not allow the free travel of the Prophet's companions without his express permission. And the reason was because he did not want these individuals going around propagating Hadith. It wasn't until the reign of Uthman that this ban was lifted and the companions were allowed to emigrate to some of the newly conquered Muslim lands. So for instance, in one narration, you have Umar detaining some of the companions of the Prophet saying to them, you have narrated hadith abundantly from the Messenger of Allah. It is reported that he had detained them in Medina, but they were set free by Uthman. In another uh, report, it says, I heard Uthman addressing the people from over the pulpit. And he said, it is unlawful for everyone to narrate any hadith he never heard of during the time of Abu Bakr and that of Umar. Verily, that which made me abstain from narrating from the Messenger of Allah was not to be among the most conscientious of his companions. But I heard him declaring, Whoever ascribes to me something I never said, he shall verily occupy his abode in fire. So in this report, Omar is condemning people and prohibiting them from spreading hadith and saying that the reason he doesn't uh, spread more hadith is not because he wasn't conscientious during the time of the uh, uh, Prophet, but because he was concerned that he might have been attributing something inaccurately. And this is the second time you see that companions are attributing this, you know, mutawatir statement from the Prophet that anyone who ascribes a lie to him 
can find their place reserved in hell. And we see uh, another close companion of the Prophet, Ali. And this is from uh, Bukhari 3047. And there's numerous narrations of this one where Ali was asked after uh, the passing of the Prophet. It says, uh, I asked Ali, do you have the knowledge of any divine inspiration? And the word here is wahi. Besides what is in Allah's book, Ali replied, no. Meaning that the only wahi that they believed was preserved, was given, was that of the Quran. That everything else, any other revelation the Prophet got was ephemeral. It was for that time, that place. But the only thing that they had carried over was this uh, Quran. And you'll see in other uh, narrations that it says what is between these two bindings. Again, showing that there's a physical Quran that they're attributing to as the only divine revelation left by the Prophet. So these are just some narrations from the Prophet himself and his closest companions regarding their views towards the dissemination and collection of hadith traditions outside of what is specifically mentioned in the Quran. And you see consistently that there was this apprehension that they were against, you know, people going around and mass propagating this information. Now, what's interesting is despite, you know, the tens of thousands of uh, various hadith, and actually there's hundreds of thousands if you consider different chains, but I'm just talking about the content. There is not a single hadith that explains how to do the salat prayer from start to finish. Such a hadith does not exist. So you have to ask, what is this that's being circulated? So we have to go back to the most prolific narrator of hadith. Again, this is Abu Huraira. So who was this Abu Huraira character and how did he have access to so many narrations from the Prophet, particularly for being with him for only such a short amount of time? Was he so wise that the Prophet kept him around as a close confidant? Was he so noble that he had the respect of all the other companions and was given special treatment by the Prophet? The simple answer to this is no, absolutely not. He was not any of that, according to the historical account, his reputation among the companions was not good at all. He was scorned by them. He was bullied by them. He was beaten by them. And it's very obvious that by the closest companions, they ridiculed the guy. They thought that this guy was a joke. They considered him delusional, that he exaggerated, that he uh, fabricated. And they, cons I mean, in all intents and purposes, this guy was the village idiot. This is how he's depicted in the Hadith. And on top of that, relatively little is known about him. I mean, even his name, Abu Huraira, this is not his actual name. This is a moniker, a nickname, a kunya, meaning the father of a kitten. They have no clue what his actual name is. There's no certainty around this. There's no certainty to even how old he was when he joined the believers. They don't know exactly where he resided from, who his parents were. All this information is obscure and you would think that they would know this stuff. Again, if they're going to attribute so many narrations to this one individual, what we can kind of deduce from the narrations is a couple points. One is that he came and he was poor, hungry, and in search of food. That he came relatively late into the uh, life of the prophet. Uh, most consensus say that it was after the battle of Kebar. So he was only with the prophet, and this varies, somewhere between one year, nine months, to maybe two and a half years tops. So despite, you know, not having this information, which is again, a major red flag, let's look at what the companions themselves had to say about this individual. So let's start with Aisha, the wife of the prophet. In Sahih Muslim, 2,493, it says Aisha reported, Don't you feel surprised at Abu Huraira? He came one day and sat beside the nook of my apartment and began to narrate the hadith of the uh, Prophet. I was hearing while I was engaged in extolling Allah, reciting SubhanAllah constantly. He stood up before I finished my repetition of SubhanAllah. If I were to meet him, I would have warned him in stern words that Allah's Messenger did not narrate the Hadith as you narrate. So here she's calling out Abu Huraira for fabricating Hadith right in front of her. She can hear him reciting things that the Prophet did not say. In this next narration, we have Abu Huraira fabricating 
what uh, the Prophet said nullifies Salat. So this is Sahih Muslim 511, and it's narrated by Abu Huraira. It says, the Messenger of Allah said, so he's attributing this to, to uh, Muhammad. It says, a woman and a ass and a dog disrupt the prayer, but something like the back of a saddle guards against that. And they used to think that you would put this back of the saddle in front of you, so when you pray, it doesn't walk in the way. So he's saying, in essence, that look, a woman, a, uh, a donkey, and a dog that if these walk in front of you while you pray, that your prayer has been interrupted. Upon hearing this, Aisha in Sahih Muslim 512d, it says, it was mentioned before Aisha that the prayer is invalidated in the case of passing of a dog, an ass, and a woman. Um, upon this, Aisha said, you likened us to the asses and the dogs. By Allah, I saw the messenger of God praying while I laid on the bed interposing between him and the Qibla. When I felt the need, I did not like to interfere with him, and I quietly moved from out from under. So here, again, she's calling out Abu Huraira's lies, that he's attributing this false uh, uh, account of the narration of the messenger, claiming that if a, uh, a dog, a donkey, or a woman walks in front of you, that this nullifies your salat. And she's saying, look, he used to pray. I was laying right next to him. There's other narrations where she would say, oh, I'd move my feet as he would prostrate, this and that. So again, this is a clear fabrication. And let's remember, it says anyone who fabricates a lie and attributes it to the uh, prophet has their uh, place reserved in hell on their own standards. What about the other uh, companions' views towards Abu Huraira? In Shara Najul Balag, it says that Ali said, among all the living, the person who has told the most lies about the messenger of Allah is Abu Huraira. So again, here we have him saying that this guy is blatantly fabricating lies. And we have other narrations from Umar condemning Abu Huraira again for uh, narrating too many hadith. So a, the author Musadad in his Musnad narrates uh, through Khalid ibn Yahya who quotes his father quoting Abu Huraira himself saying that Umar once reprimanded him on hearing that he was narrating incredibly too many traditions and attributing them to the Prophet. He rebuked him once and said, You shall leave alone quoting the Messenger of Allah or I shall send you back to the land of Dus or to the land of apes. So again, it's saying that, look, if you continue narrating hadith, you're going to be exiled. In another narration, this is from Sahih Muslim uh, number 31, and this one's kind of long, I'm just going to paraphrase it. Uh, basically, uh, uh, Abu Huraira went and found the, uh, the, uh, the prophet in seclusion in a garden, and the prophet says, hey, Abu Huraira, here are my sandals. Please take these. And the first person you see who declares that there is no other God beside God, give them this sandal and tell them that they're granted paradise. So he goes around the corner, he's all happy, and then he sees Omar and he says, Hey, Omar, uh, I have these sandals, and if you say that there's no other God beside God and I give you one of these, it's from the Prophet in your guaranteed paradise. Uh, Omar, hearing this, hits the guy so hard that he falls on his butt <laughs> and he starts crying. And then he runs back to the, uh, the, the, the messenger, and the messenger says, Abu Huraira, what's wrong? He says, I told you what you told me. And I gave the sandal to Omar and I told him that he's granted paradise and he hit me. <laughs> so you can imagine that, look, someone who's willing to just like beat on someone else uh, for some idiotic thing that they said uh, does not have the respect of the people. It's very obvious. You would not treat someone uh, who you respect in such a way. And this is another narration, again, about the idiotic nature of Abu Huraira. So this is uh, Abi Dawood, uh, number 3,911. So again, I'm not going to read the, the, the whole thing. I'm just going to give the gist, and you can go to the reference yourself and read it. And it says, Abu Huraira narrated that the Messenger of Allah said that there's no transitive disease. That's the part that's important. He's saying that the dissemination of disease doesn't happen. And then some people were like, what? What do you mean it doesn't happen? Like, I, I recall the Prophet saying it, and obviously our common sense tells us this. And so they, they, they started asking around. It says, a man told me that Abu Huraira narrated it to him, saying that he heard the Prophet say a diseased camel 
should not be brought with a healthy camel to drink water. So he's saying, look, there's a contradiction here. In this hadith, you're saying there's no transit of disease. And in this other hadith, you're saying that a diseased camel should not drink from the same trough as a uh, healthy camel. So it continues. It says, he said, the man then cons uh, consulted him and said, did you not tell us that the prophet said that there's no transitive disease? And then it lists some other stuff, but this is the, the, the one, the transitive disease. He replied, it did not transmit it to you. Al-Zuri said, Abu Salma said, he had narrated it. And I did not hear that Abu Huraira had ever forgotten any tradition except this one. So again, they're saying that in essence, he said one thing, that the prophet said there's no transitive disease. Then he has another hadith that says there is transitive disease. When people question him about it, he denies it. Now, what's funny about this is this concept of Abu Huraira forgetting. So one of the, the claims that Abu Huraira makes is that the reason he was able to remember so many hadith was that the prophet granted him perfect memory. So this is from his narration. This is Bukhari 7354. Abu Huraira said, you people claim that Abu Huraira narrates too many narrations of Allah's messenger. However, with Allah will be our appointment. I was a poor man and used to stick to Allah's messenger, contended with what will fill my stomach. And the Muhajirin, the immigrants who used to be busy trading in the markets and the Ansar used to be busy looking at their properties. One day I heard Allah's messenger saying, who will spread his rida, and this is a garment covering the upper part of a body, till I finish my speech, and then fold it, and wrapped it over my uh, your body, in which case he will never forget anything he had heard from me. So I spread my garment which I was wearing, and by him who sent Muhammad with the truth ever since, I have never forgotten whatever I heard from the Prophet. So he's claiming that he has perfect memory because the prophet made the statement that anyone who uh, removes their rida and wraps it around them tightly, that this is going to give them perfect uh, memory. Now, what's ironic about this is there's other hadith from Abu Huraira that contradict this very same narration. So, for instance, in Sahih Bukhari 3648, it says, Abu Huraira said, Oh, Allah's messenger, I hear many narrations from you, but I forget them. He said, spread your covering sheet. I spread my sheet and he moved both his hands as if scooping something and emptied them into the sheet and said, wrap it. I wrapped it around my body. And since then, I have never forgotten. <laughs> so again, even this hadith that is talking about the perfect memory of Abu Huraira contradicts itself. And there's numerous of these hadith and they're all different from one another. Because in one, it's saying that he went to the prophet and the prophet made the claim. In this one, he's saying that he went to the prophet and said, oh, I can't remember. And the prophet gave him this solution. So everything up until now is around the character, the background of Abu Huraira. The fact that he has a disproportionate uh, amount of hadith attributed to him. You're talking about multiple times more than the closest companions who spent their entire life with the prophet. You know, this one individual, this, uh, you know, village idiot had thousands and thousands, 5,374 hadith attributed to him. You know, probably, and this is where it gets really funny. There is not a single narrator who's convinced more people of the ridiculousness and absurdity of hadith than Abu Huraira. His stuff is so over-the-top nonsensical that anyone, again, without bias, reads this. It's like, what the heck is this? You know, how can anyone with a straight face claim that this is coming from the messenger of God? So God willing, I want to go through some of these hadith, some of these gems from Abu Huraira. And just to emphasize how absurd this is, and keep in mind, this guy narrated 5,374 hadith, and I'm just picking handfuls of them. Okay, first one. This is regarding Moses and the stone, narrated by no other than Abu Huraira. Allah's messenger said, the prophet Moses was a shy person and used to cover his body completely because of his extensive shyness. One of the children of Israel hurt him by saying he covers his body in this way only because some defects in his skin, either leprosy or a scrotial hernia, or he has some other defect. Allah wished to clear Moses of what they said about him. So one day, while Moses was in seclusion, he took off his clothes and put them on a stone and started taking a bath. When he had finished the bath, he moved towards his clothes so as to take them. But the stone took his clothes and fled. 
Moses picked up his stick and ran after the stone, saying, O stone, give me back my garment, till he reached a group of Beni Israel, who saw him naked and said, Hey, we found in him the best of what Allah has created. And Allah cleared him of what they had accused him. The stone stopped there, and Moses took and put his garment on and started beating the stone with his stick. By Allah, the stone still has some traces of the hitting. Three, four, or five marks. Now, as if that's not ridiculous enough, this is apparently tafsir. It says, This was what Allah refers to in his saying, O you who believe, be you not like those who annoyed Moses, but Allah proved his innocence of that which they alleged, and he was honorable in Allah's sight. And this is from... The Quran, Surah 33, verse 69. So they're claiming that this story, Abu Huraira, I should be clarified. Abu Huraira is claiming that this is the tafsir for Surah 33, verse 69, regarding the, uh, the, the children of Israel hurting Moses. That this is the backstory. And this came from no other than the prophet of God. And you can understand how someone can read this and be like, what the heck is this? This is so nonsensical, so ridiculous. How can anyone claim that this is what the messenger of God said? Let alone that this actually took place regarding Moses. On the subject of bad tafsir, we have another narration from Abu Huraira. And this is Sahih Muslim 3015. And it says, Allah's messenger said, it was said to the people of Israel, enter this land, saying, Hita, remove thou from us the burden of our sins, whereupon we would forgive you your sins. But they twisted this statement and entered the gate, dragging upon their buttocks and said, the green in the ear. <laughs> so this concept in the Quran, where it says that they were commanded to enter the gate humbly, that they uh, refused, they carried out other commands other than what they were commanded to do. And according to Abu Huraira, claims that the Prophet said that what they actually did was rather than enter the gate as commanded, they dragged themselves under buttocks. And I have no clue what this means. And the grain in the ear is what they said. And there's another one regarding Moses. So it says, narrated by Abu Huraira, this is Sahih Bukhari, 1,339. And the, the, the previous one, I can't remember if I said it, the, the previous one regarding Moses and the stone was Sahih Bukhari 3,404. So this is uh, Bukhari 1339. It says, narrated by Abu Huraira, the angel of death was sent to Moses. And when he went to him, Moses slapped him severely, spoiling one of his eyes. The angel went back to his Lord and said, you sent me to a slave who does not want to die. Allah restored his eye and said, Go back and tell him, Moses, to place his hands over the back of an ox, for he will be allowed to live for a number of years equal to the number of hairs coming under his hand. So the angel came to him and told him the same. Moses asked, Oh my Lord, what will be then? He said, Death will be then. He said, Let it be now. He asked Allah, He bring him near the sacred land at the distance of a stone's throw. Allah's messenger said, Were I there, I would show you the grave of Moses by the way near the red sand hill. This is an absolute mockery of God, the prophet, the religion, and everything under the, the sun. I mean, it's saying that the angel of death went to Moses and Moses knocked out his eye. What nonsense! What absolute utter nonsense. And this is getting propagated around as if this is an authentic hadith attributed to the prophet himself. We got more. Solomon's wives. So this is Sahih Muslim, 1654e. Abu Huraira reported Allah's apostle saying, so keep in mind, again, he's saying that this is all coming from the prophet. That Solomon said, I will go round and sleep with my 99 wives. Every one of them will give birth to a child who will grow up as a horseman and fight in the cause of Allah. His companion said to him, Say, Inshallah. But he did not say, Inshallah. He went round all of them, but none of them became pregnant but one, and she gave birth to a deformed child. And by him in whose hand is the life of Muhammad, if he had said, Inshallah, his wives would have given birth to children who would have all grown up into horsemen and fought in the way of Allah. I mean, it's obvious. These narrations are insulting to the prophets, to the messengers of God. It's claiming that they're just these silly individuals. 
And again, this is getting propagated around as if this is authentic Sahih Hadith that came out of the, 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 the mouth of the Prophet. Another narration, this is Sahih Bukhari 3019. And I got a lot of these. So uh, it, by all means, I think it's educational to hear this, but they're nonsensical. So this is Abu Huraira. I heard Allah's Messenger saying, an ant bit a prophet amongst the prophets. And he ordered that the place of the ants be burnt. So Allah inspired him. It is because one ant bit you that you burnt a nation amongst the nations that glorify Allah. Now you could say this has some metaphorical undertones, blah, blah, blah. But the concept is, He's saying that one prophet got bit by an ant and he burned the entire ant colony. Again, it's totally absurd. What about these, uh, these uh, hadith regarding the grooming? So one of the ones that's just absolutely comical is that traditionalists believe that when you go to the bathroom, you have to wash yourself with an odd number of stones. Why odd? It's because of Abu Huraira. So this is Sahih Muslim 237a. It says... Uh, Allah's apostle said, when anyone wipes himself with pebbles after answering the call of nature, he must make use of an odd number. And when any one of you performs ablution, he must snuff his nose with water, then clean it. So he's saying that when you wipe yourself after uh, going to the bathroom, you have to use an odd number of stones. And it gets weirder. This is Sahih Bukhari 3860. So again, Abu Huraira, that once he was in the company of the Prophet carrying a water of pot for his ablution and for cleaning his private parts. While he was following him, carrying it, the Prophet said, Who is this? He said, I am Abu Huraira. The Prophet said, Bring me stones in order to clean my privates and do not bring any bones or animal dung. Abu Huraira went on narrating. So I brought some stones carrying them in the corner of my robe till I put them by his side and went away. When he finished, I walked with him and asked, what about the bone and the animal dung? He said, they are the food of the jinns. The delegate of jinns of the city of Nisban came to me and how nice those jinns were and asked me for the remains of human food. I invoked Allah for them that they would never pass by a bone or an animal dung but find food on them. So, I don't even know where to start. Like, <laughs> I mean, again, these are getting propagated. People are making religious decrees based on this nonsense. They think that this is revelation from God, from some village idiot who comes up with this stuff. And there's more. So this is Sahih Muslim, 1914. And you have to ask, what constitutes a martyr? Hey, let's ask Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira says, the messenger of Allah said, while a man walks along a path, finds a thorny twig lying on the way and puts it aside, Allah would appreciate it and forgive him. And the prophet said, martyrs are five kinds. One who dies of plague. One who dies of diarrhea. One who is drowned, one who is buried under debris, and one who dies fighting in the way of Allah. So, we're to believe that the martyrs are those who die of plague or diarrhea, or are drowned, or have a building fall on top of them. That those are considered martyrs in the eyes of the Prophet? I mean, again, this is absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous. It makes a mockery out of God's religion. In addition, Abu Huraira has all these silly hadith regarding the, the, the uh, Satan. In Sahih Bukhari 3285, it says, The Prophet said, When the call for prayer is announced, Satan takes his heels, farting with noise. When the call of prayer is finished, he comes back. And there's numerous narrations of this, that when the Satan hears the call to prayer, he starts farting as he runs away super loud to block the sound of prayer. Sahih Bukhari 3295. Abu Huraira said, If anyone rises from sleep and performs the ablution, he should wash his nose by putting water in it and blowing it out three times because Satan has stayed in the upper part of his nose all night. So apparently, when we sleep, Satan likes to reside in the upper part of the nose, not the lower part, the upper part of the nose. And that's the reason that you have to rinse your nose out three times to get Satan out of that nose. 
In Sahih Bukhari 3303, it says, Abu Huraira said, the Prophet said, When you hear the crowing of roosters, ask for Allah's blessings, for the crowing indicates that they have seen an angel. And when you hear the braying of donkeys, seek refuge with Allah from Satan, for the braying indicates that they've seen Satan. It is from these kind of silly hadith that these superstitions and nonsensical uh, rituals start taking place, where people start doing this thing thinking that this is what the Prophet himself uh, uh, advocated for, not realizing that they've been duped by this individual who, again, will we'll discuss how he became such a prominent narrator of hadith. But there's more. So in Sahih Bukhari 6226, it says that uh, the Prophet said, Allah loves sneezing but dislikes yawning. So if any one of you sneezes and then praises Allah, every Muslim who hears him praises Allah has to say tashmit to him. But as regards to yawning, it is from Satan. So if one of you yawns, he should try his best to stop it. For when any one of you yawns, Satan laughs at him. You have to stop and ask, how many poor children have been reprimanded by their parents for yawning? Probably even gotten beaten over this silly hadith. Sahih Muslim, 2114. And keep in mind, you know, I'm pulling predominantly from Sahih Muslim and Sahih Bukhari, the two most prominent compilers of hadith who relied heavily on Abu Huraira. It reads, Abu Huraira reported, Allah's messenger is saying, the bell is the musical instrument of Satan. All I got to say is my heart goes out to all those individuals who spent their life manufacturing bells only to have them totally spat on by Abu Huraira. And uh, did you know that apparently the prophet wrestled with Satan? Yes, he wrestled with Satan. This is Sahih Bukhari 1210, narrated by Abu Huraira. The prophet once offered the prayer and said, Satan came in front of me and tried to interrupt my prayer. But Allah gave me the upper hand on him and I choked him. No doubt. I thought of tying him to one of the pillars of the mosque till you get up in the morning and see him. Then I remembered the statement of Prophet Solomon, My Lord, bestow on me a kingdom such as shall not belong to any other after me. Then Allah made him, Satan, return with his head down, humiliated. Yeah! Can you imagine the excitement when Abu Huraira was sharing this hadith? That the Prophet himself choked out Satan! that he pulled out some UFC moves on it. You know, again, this is the stuff that makes people totally turn away from religion. This nonsense. I mean, you read the Quran. It's full of beauty, elegance, all these beautiful messages and lessons. And then you open up the Hadith book and this is the garbage you get. And it, it, it gets sillier. It, there's a whole class of these Hadith of bad science from Abu Huraira. So this is Sahih Bukhari 3326. And again, I'm going to uh, paraphrase this one. It's narrated by Abu Huraira. The Prophet said, Allah created Adam, making him 60 cubits tall. So Adam was 60 cubits tall. People have been decreasing in stature since Adam's creation. Hmm. Can, can we attest this? Can we, can we see? Can we go dig up some uh, old human remains and see? Do we decrease in size? from the time of Adam to now, because I've never seen that. In uh, Sahih Muslim 2955a, it says, The only thing in a man which would not decay would be one bone, the tailbone, from which the whole frame would be reconstituted on the day of resurrection. So this claims that the only bone that does not decay and rot is the tailbone. I did a quick Google search. That's not the case. The tailbone rots, it decays. It's not infinitely <laughs> preserved. And here's another one from uh, Sahih Muslim 758a. And it says, Abu uh, Huraira reported Allah's messenger as saying, Our Lord, the blessed and the exalted, descends every night to the lowest heaven when one third of the latter part of the night is left. And says, who supplicates me so that I may answer him? Who asks me so that I may give him? Who asks me forgives forgiveness so that I may forgive him? 
Now, the problem with this narration is that everywhere on earth at some point is going to be the latter one-third of the night. So this kind of contradicts common sense that if God descends closer to earth during this period, then technically he would never reside further away from earth because always at some point on the earth is going to be the latter third of the night. And again, this shows some of the nonsensical understandings that they were propagating and again, attributing this to the prophet of God. I can guarantee he never made such a claim. There's one other one that, again, I, there's numerous individuals who have renounced their faith, have walked away from the Quran because of this one hadith. And this is uh, Sahih Bukhari 3320. It says, narrated by Abu Huraira, the Prophet said, If a housefly falls in the drink of any one of you, he should dip it into the drink and take it out. For one of its wings has the disease and the other has the cure for the disease. There are straight up doctors who are uh, Muslim who once they read this, they said, this is absurd. Now, what's funny is you go and read all these people saying, no, no, there's truth in this. If there's a disease, there's also the cure. It's like, that's fine. But dipping a housefly into a drink is not going to provide the anecdote to that disease. This is not how it works. And it's not just this bad science. There are many hadith from Abu Huraira who depicts the Prophet in such a terrible light. And one of these can be seen in Sahih Bukhari 644, narrated by Abu Huraira. Allah's Messenger said, By him in whose hand my soul is, I was about to order for the collecting of firewood as fuel, then order someone to announce the adhan for the prayer, then order someone to lead the prayer, and I would go from behind and burn the houses of men who did not present themselves for the prayer. By him in whose hands my soul is, if any one of them had known that he would get a bone covered with a good meat or two, pieces of meat present in between two ribs, he would have turned up for the Isha prayer. So it's saying that the prophet wanted to go and burn the houses of individuals who didn't show up for the Salat. Again, this shows just this cruel, inhumane depiction that he's portraying of the prophet. People should be up in arms at this. You know, you have some uh, um, uh, art school teacher showing a uh, picture of the prophet in some painting and people lose their minds. They demand that that person to be taken down, to be uh, uh, kicked out of the school. But then they go and they promote garbage like this claiming that the prophet wanted to go and burn the house of companions who didn't show up for the salat, right? Where's the outrage? Where's the, 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 the protest? No, they propagate this. They promote this. They consider this as sacred instructions. It gets worse. Tricking virgins into marriage, narrated by Abu Huraira. The prophet said, a virgin should not be married till she is asked for her consent. Okay. And the matron should not be married till she is asked whether she agrees to marry or not. It was asked, O oh Allah's apostle, how will she, the virgin, express her consent? He said, by keeping silent. Some people said that if a virgin is not asked for her consent and she is not married, and then a man, by playing a trick, presents two false witnesses, and he has married her with her consent, and the judge confirms his marriage as the true one, and the husband knows that the witnesses were false ones, then there's no harm for him to consummate his marriage with her, and the marriage is regarded as valid. I just vomited a little in my mouth. So it's saying that the consent of a virgin to marriage to consummating the marriage is her silence. And then it says that if, you know, people said that, oh yeah, if you trick a virgin into marrying you, that the marriage is considered lawful. And again, this stuff is being attributed to the prophet. How horrendous is this? It gets worse. What is the wife's responsibility, according to Abu Huraira, who claims the prophet himself made this statement? In Sahih Bukhari, uh, 3,237. 
It says, narrated Abu Huraira. Allah's messenger said, if a husband calls his wife to his bed to have sexual relation and she refuses and causes him to sleep in anger, the angels will curse her till morning. So in essence, this is subjugating women, wives, that they have to come to their husbands at their disposal at any time. That this is a commandment from God's messenger that if some uh, wife does not do this at the beckoning of her husband, that she is cursed by the angels till morning. So one has to ask, how does this nonsense make its way into the Sahih collection, the authentic collection of the Hadith compilers? You know, you would think any sensible person would read this and be like, there is no way the Prophet made these statements, especially coming from someone who has such a shady uh, uh, background. And the reason is, is they've come to the consensus. They say, look, if the Isnad, the chain of narrators is sound, therefore you have to accept whatever is stated. And that these individuals are beyond reproach. You can't criticize Abu Huraira because he was a companion of the Prophet. And it doesn't matter how ludicrous, how absurd his statements are. If the chain of narration is sound, you have to accept it. Now, the irony of this, again, is that you have Hadith that says, whoever lies upon the Prophet, then let him take his seat in the fire. And now we're going to go over some of these hadith that are blatant lies in the hadith itself of Abu Huraira lying about the Prophet. In Sahih Bukhari 5355, it narrates Abu Huraira, the Prophet said, The best alms is that which is given when one is rich, and the giving hand is better than the taking one. And you should start first to support your dependents. A wife says, you should either provide me with food or divorce me. A slave says, give me food and enjoy my service. A son says, give me food to whom do you leave me? The people said, oh, Abu Huraira, did you hear that from Allah's messenger? He said, no, it is from my own self. <laughs> so he's blatantly lying and it's in the Hadith. He starts out by saying the Prophet said this stuff. He gets pressed on it says, hey, did you actually hear the Prophet said this? He says, no, this one's for myself. This is absurd. Someone like this testimony should never be accepted, especially for something so critical as the supposed narrations of the Prophet. And here's another example of a blatant lie from Abu Huraira. So it's well documented that realistically, he basically joined the believers sometime after the Battle of Qaybah. Now what's interesting is, in Sahih Muslim 115, and there's numerous narrations of it, Abu Huraira is giving testimony to what took place at the Battle of Khaybar. Now how is it possible? He wasn't even a believer. He wasn't amongst them at this time. And some narrators, they try to twist. They say, oh, no, no, no. He was giving an account of what took place, but he's talking about it as if he's in the first person. Again, another blatant lie from Abu Huraira. And we already saw the accusations from Aisha regarding the fabrications of Hadith coming out of Abu Huraira's own mouth, that she witnessed this and she was going to call him out from it. And here's another example where Aisha again calls out the lies from Abu Huraira. So in Sahih Muslim 1109a, okay, uh, there is a hadith attributed to Abu Huraira where he claims that he heard the Prophet say, he who is overtaken by dawn in a state of seminal emission, Janub, should not observe fast. The people, when they heard this, they said, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. They started asking around and they asked the, the, the prophet's wives and they said, no, this is not the case. So they go back and they confront Abu Huraira and the, the hadith continues. It says, so we came to Abu Huraira and Abu Bakr, who was with us throughout, and Abdul Rahman made a mention of it to him. Whereupon Abu Huraira said, did they, the two wives of the prophet, tell you this? He replied, yes. Upon this, Abu Huraira said, they have better knowledge. Abu Huraira then attributed what was said about it to Fadl bin Abbas and said, I heard it from Fadl and not from the Messenger of Allah. And Abu Huraira then retracted from what he used to say about it. This guy has got busted blatantly lying. He gets called out for it and he says, oh, I didn't hear it from the prophet. I heard it from someone else. Well, I'm sorry. You're attributing these lies to the prophet. You have your place reserved for you in hell by their own literature, by their own standards. Yet they still accept this garbage from this individual. 
And one of the questions that comes up is, if you notice, in Abu Huraira's narrations, there's a lot of Jewish and Talmudic influence. And the question is, where does this come from? Apparently, Abu Huraira was from Yemen. He wasn't Jewish. But we see an abundance of these hadith, again, from Talmudic influences. And uh, I'm not going to get into too many of these. I'm just going to call out a couple of them. There's one, in essence, where he claims that uh, God turned a number of the children of Israel into mice. And the reason is, is because when they offered them uh, milk, they wouldn't drink it. <laughs> so therefore, they say that, look, uh, God turned the children of Israel to mice. And you can find this narration in Sahih Muslim 2997A and B. Uh, there's another one where it bad mouse. Hajar, this is the wife of Abraham, the mother of Ishmael, the mother of the Arabs. And again, this is because of the negative sentiment that the children of Israel have towards this lineage. And he's attributing this slandering to the prophet, saying that in essence is calling her a uh, humiliated the pagan and gave us a slave girl for service, saying that this is what uh, uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was saying. Again, these are fabrications. They want to belittle uh, the uh, the the mother of Ishmael because of this lineage. This comes straight from Jewish sources. And there's one other one that this one is just very bizarre, and it has to do with. <laughs> Abu Huraira, this is Sahih Bukhari, 3,436. And again, you'll, you'll see this one written in very uh, narrations, always attributed back to Abu Huraira, where it's the prophet said regarding, this is just, it gets really weird. So it says, none spoke in the cradle but three. The first was Jesus. The second was someone from Beni Israel by the name of Juraj. Now, this is where it gets weird. So Juraj apparently was a very pious individual and he locked himself in his room in deep meditation. And his mother said, may he not die until he sees the face of prostitutes. So she got a prostitute for him and Juraj refused her seduction. And then uh, uh, months or years later, she comes back and claims that she has a baby from Juraj. The people get upset and they tear down his, uh, uh, his house and they pull him out. And then they realize that he was not the father, that it was actually the shepherd. And so they rebuild the home. It's like, okay, this is just like weird. And then it continues. So it's like, it says that the, the prophet claimed that only three people spoke from the crib. The first was Jesus. The second one was this individual, this uh, children of Israel, Juraj. And the third was a lady from Beni Israel was nursing her child at her breast. When a handsome rider passed by her, she said, Oh Allah, make my child like him. On that, the child left her breast and facing the rider said, Oh Allah, do not make me like him. The child then started sucking her breast again. Abu Huraira further said, as if I were now looking at the prophet sucking his finger in the way of a demonstration of the baby sucking. <laughs> this is disgusting. This is ridiculous. This is in the Sahih books from the traditionalists. And they go around again. They propagate this nonsense. You know, people go and they draw a picture of the prophet. They lose their mind. And at the same time, they're going around propagating just this disgusting disgraceful depictions of the prophet themselves and this stuff they promote so again the question is where is abu huraira getting these stuff from so it's understood that he was heavily influenced by someone by the name of kab al-abar kab al-abar was a jewish rabbi who apparently converted to islam during the reign of umar and it's understood that he joined Umar on his trip to Jerusalem in order to like educate him about Jewish matters. But after Umar discovered what Kab was doing and the influence he was having uh, propagating these false hadith of the, the, the Torah and claiming that the, the prophet himself made these statements and using <laughs> Abu Huraira as this vehicle, he basically forbade him from narrating hadith and threatened to exile him. And Cab was not happy about this. And it's actually believed that he was part of the plot behind the assassination of Omar. Because there's a narration where he goes to Omar and says, hey, you have three days to live. He says, how do you know that? He says, oh, uh, it's written in the Torah. And then Omar says, is my name written in the Torah? He says, yes, everything is written in the Torah. And then he makes the same proclamation two days. Uh, he says, you have two days to live, then one day to live. And then he's assassinated. 
So the idea is like, look, this guy isn't magical. He doesn't have this, you know, ability to, to foretell the future. He was behind this plot because, again, he was understood to be a nefarious individual who is going around fabricating Hadith. He finds this idiot by the name of Abu Huraira and convinces him to basically propagate these narrations on his behalf. And this is actually, it's, it's uh, warned in the Quran. In Surah 5 verse 41, it says, O you messenger, do not be saddened by those who hasten to disbelieve among those who say we believe with their mouths while their hearts do not believe. Among the Jews, some listen to lies. They listen to people who never met you and who distorted the words out of context, then said, if you are given this, accept it. But if you are given anything different, beware. Whomever God wills to divert, you can uh, do nothing to help him against God. God does not wish to cleanse their hearts. They have incurred humiliation in this world and in the hereafter. They will suffer a terrible retribution. Again, this is confirmation that even at the time the prophet was alive, people were fabricating hadith about this. And this continued on well after his death by people like Kab, like people like Abu Huraira. And it's also documented that this process of fabricating hadith continued to its apex during the Umayyad dynasty. And for instance, in the book, Lights on the Muhammadan Sunnah, which is actually a book in defense of hadith, it states the following. It says, Hamad ibn Zayd is reported to have said, the atheists have fabricated 12,000 traditions ascribing them to the messenger of Allah. Al-Mahdi said, one of the atheists has confessed before me that he composed 400 traditions and they were being circulated and conveyed among the people. Ibn Askar reported that an atheist was brought once to Al-Rashid who gave his orders to behead him. When he, the atheist, said, O Amir al-Mumen, uh, commander of the believers, aren't you aware of 4,000 traditions I fabricated in which I forbid what is lawful, halal, and deem lawful what is forbidden in the Quran? Even al-Bukhari writes, I commit to memory 100 correct traditions and 200 falsified traditions. The number of inauthentic hadith collected by Bukhari is actually exponentially higher than that. Because Bukhari claims that he collected uh, about 600,000 hadith, of which only 7,563 he retained as authentic. And then of that, there's only 2,600 if you remove repetitions. So out of a span of 600,000, less than 1% he deemed as authentic. And as we see, there's numerous hadith that he has from individuals like Abu Huraira who should never be part of this compilation. So again, one has to ask, how did this individual, right, these, these nefarious people, go from being, you know, mocked, ridiculed, uh, despised, considered these village idiots, people who shouldn't be trusted, to having such a high status uh, among Muslims? This was by no surprise. Uh, it was carried out during the Umayyad dynasty by no other than Mawiyah. And for those who've listened to the last episode, they know the nefarious tricks that Mawiyah played in order to deceive the Muslim masses. And Mawiyah saw an opportunity in individuals like Abu Huraira, in individuals like Kab, where in essence they can use them as a vehicle to propagate a nonsensical hadith. And that's the reason that the, uh, the apex of hadith fabrication happened under the reign of individuals like Mawiyah and predominantly the Umayyad dynasty. Because they realized that if they can fabricate hadith, then they can sway the masses towards whatever opinion or understanding they have. They want them to go and kill each other, they can uh, fabricate hadith for that. They want them to go and fight someone else, they can fabricate hadith for that. They want people to be subjugated for them and think that they're doing noble acts, they can fabricate hadith for that. So for instance, we have this hadith in Bukhari 7361 regarding Mawiyah's uh, uh, vouching of Kab al-Abar. Uh, it reads, he heard Mawiyah talking to a group of people from Quraysh at Al-Madinah, and on mentioning Kab al-Abar, he said, he was one of the most truthful of those who used to talk about the people of the scripture. So Mawiyah is saying he's one of the most truthful. And in spite of that, we used to test him for lying. So it's saying it's doubling down that this individual is truthful. Now, what's really disturbing is you'll see some of the translators of this hadith that they, they say, no, no, no. It doesn't say that uh, in spite of that, we used to test him for lying. They said uh, in spite of that, we used to catch him 
for uh, uh, detecting uh, uh, fabrications. And the Arabic is clear. This is not them saying they detect. The word is they tested him for lying. That despite his trustworthiness, that in essence they said, no, 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 he's even more trustworthy than that. You know, after the death of Uthman, Abu Huraira was courted by Mawiyah in exchange for his dubious willingness to fabricate hadith. And who knows how much of this was him, you know, in essence, pushing him. And the other aspects, like, look, by all intents and purposes, Abu Huraira does not seem like a very intelligent, well-respected individual. And, you know, how much of this were they manipulating him to do their bidding? So in return, Mawiyah rewarded him handsomely, giving him wealth, luxuries, and women. For his fabrications, Abu Huraira was placed as the governor of Medina. He was also given a wife uh, whose name was Bisra, who was a prominent daughter of the governor of Basra, uh, who was appointed by Umar, who uh, died years before this arranged marriage. Now, what makes this very significant was that Abu Huraira was the servant of this uh, lady Bisra. And it states in a report, it says, She used to let him work for her during the time of the Prophet. Then he married her after that, when Marwan ibn al-Hakam used to let him be in charge of Medina during the time of Mawiyah. And then it quotes a narration by Abu Huraira. It says, I placed myself at the service of the daughter of Ghazwan in exchange for food for my stomach and for something to wear on my feet. She used to order me to ride while serving her and to approach her barefoot to serve her. After that, Allah made her my wife. So I ordered her to ride as she served me and to approach me barefoot. Thus, Abu Huraira got even with the unfortunate lady. So this was his reward for being part of the court of Mawiyah and Marwan. Mawiyah in the Umayyad dynasty removed the restrictions placed upon Abu Huraira from narrating hadith. They used him for their own means and transformed him from a village idiot to someone to be venerated and looked upon for religious laws and guidance. Rather than having his work discarded as untrustworthy, he is viewed as an authority to the traditions of the Prophet. You know, roughly 1,034 hadith compiled by Bukhari and 391 hadith compiled by Muslim are from Abu Huraira. And we went over a number of these nonsensical hadith. You know, it's strange because by their own standards, if someone is attributed as a liar, especially someone who's lying, making attributions at a prophet, that they have their spot reserved for them in hell. But for whatever reason... Abu Huraira has impunity from such declarations that he's able to go around blatantly lying, claiming that he heard things from the Prophet when the companions themselves know he's a fabricator. The historians, the compilers of the Hadith know themselves he's a fabricator, but they don't reduce, diminish his authority on these subjects and they accept it hook, line, and sinker. Again, as stated before by Mark Twain, it is easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. And by God's leave, the Muslim masses have been fooled again and again by these clever tactics of the hypocrites and the disbelievers among them. It's time for people to wake up, reject this nonsense, follow the Quran alone, the only legitimate source left by the Prophet himself that was upheld by the companions who were closest to the Prophet, and do away with this nonsense. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in touch, you can join us on our Discord server. The invite link is below. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. And until next time, peace and God bless.